Southern Skies. Online Media. Playing Crazy Down Under's coverage of the 2013 Australian International Air Show is proudly sponsored by Jet Ride Australia, Oz Runways, Red Baron Adventures and Sennheiser. In conjunction with Avplan, a classic flight bag, Eco 2000 and World Flight Planner. Well, good day, folks. Welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 105, Avalon 2013, uh, day five coverage. I'm Steve Fisher, and with me is Grant McCarran. Grant, a, a wonderful day weather-wise. Very windy, but uh, the crowds came out for the first uh, full public day here at Avalon. That's right, mate. Uh, Saturday is the first full public day, and with the beautiful weather and a whole horde of people, it was a, a very crowded place. Lots of nimble dodging and weaving to get around people to get from uh, interview to interview, but all went well. Now, of course, on public days, it's not on common to see the barriers go up around just the crowd control barriers I guess around many of the corporate displays in all the halls uh, obviously the people there don't want uh, everybody going around and fiddling with all that fancy gadgetry that they've got it's a case of look but don't touch but uh, most I think most people were out I think everybody came to watch the Raptor and it put on another stunning display today indeed mate very noisy very impressive and very vertical today because it was clear blue skies uh, fair dinkum mate that thing does things that no airplane should do I know I said this yesterday but <laughs> it, it's, it's really amazing to watch the, the really the low speed handling characteristics of that aircraft it's just amazing yeah well he's only doing 90 knots as he comes in and uh, slowly goes across man I could go past him in a Cessna I'll tell you what wouldn't it be pretty cool to say you'd uh, (laughs) you'd outrun a Raptor in a Cessna 172 (laughs) just for a little while at least until the pilot went hey (laughs) (laughs) he was going on yeah he'd probably shoot you down (laughs) he'd just fly past and blow you out of the sky with a jet wash anyway mate you're out talking to the Royal Australian Air Force P3 Orion crews today a couple of great interviews there yeah mate managed to sneak in a couple of interviews with the guys on board the Orion. Uh, had a quick tour of the aircraft inside and then uh, down the back in the crew rest area we recorded a couple of quick interviews just before they had to uh, push back and uh, get out onto the uh, apron to warm up the engines before they did their flying display. A wonderful looking aircraft still after all these years, the Orion and a wonderful sounding aircraft too I must say. Uh, I went and spoke to uh, Jackie Carlon at Piper. She's been out here displaying the, well all of Piper's products but specifically the Seminole. They've got a New Zealand registered Seminole here yeah. at the moment and uh, that's one's been it's brand new it's got, just come out of the factory with the new Garmin 1000 package in it and uh, they're out here trying to push that angle ground it seems like uh, every new aircraft on the planet now if it's got a glass cockpit it seems to be Garmin that's for sure yeah well very sexy looking aircraft uh, that nice new shiny feel to it but uh, while you were doing that I was over with uh, Ben Jones and the two of us were recording an interview with uh, Bob and Laurie Carlton um, having a chat with them about the jet powered Salto glider that Bob flies both during the day and during the evening show with uh, pyrotechnics and so on. Really interesting chat and some uh, rather out there kind of questions that you might not normally expect that uh, Ben Jones managed to come up with. Yeah, he came up with some great ones. And, of course, Ben's got some gliding experience, so that's why, why we uh, wanted him to go down and do that interview with you. Uh, we're going to run the Owens Up and Kiralee's Up interview in uh, this one. We recorded that yesterday. Timbo's tarmac and in the keyhole with Papa Smurf. But, Grant, I've got to say, it's, it wasn't all about uh, us interviewing people today. We were interviewed ourselves. Oh, we were, mate, and uh, that was pretty interesting. Uh, that was uh, Cresha Ballantyne from AOPA's uh, Pilot Magazine uh, here in Australia. 
Yeah, and uh, she came by to uh, have a chat with us. They took a couple of photos, and I think they must have used one of those funky lenses. We actually managed to look reasonably okay. Yeah, well, I turned my head, I turned my head right around so she could just take a <gasps> picture of the back of my head, right. mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I do radio, mate. <laughs> Indeed. Video killed the radio star. So that's uh, day five at Avalon 2013. Let's get into it. Flight Lieutenant James Piers, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Good to have you on board. Thanks, mate. We're sitting in the P3 Orion, and, mate, you're one of the guys up the pointy end. That's right. I'm uh, lucky enough to be the uh, display pilot this weekend. Uh, we've done a workup over the last couple of weeks, and it's a, a pleasure to be displaying this aircraft for the public here at Avalon. Oh, it always looks great. Uh, it's pretty rare to see an old aircraft like this with the T-56 engine still flying, so uh, we're, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, James, how did you get to where you're at? Uh, I joined the RAF about 10 years ago. I uh, left school in 98, did a couple of years at uni, uh, realised it wasn't for me and put that on hold, and I uh, joined the RAF as a direct entry pilot. A couple of years of training there and then uh, selected P3s. We'd just gone into the Middle East at the time, and it sounded like that was where the action was, so went straight to P3s, and uh, here I am eight or so years later. I'm loving it. <laughs> Now, um, the P3 is primarily thought of as maritime. That's where it came from, was the maritime patrol. But you're in the uh, Mio, and there's a lot of desert there. Uh, what kind of missions were you doing? Well, the good thing about the P3 is it's uh, got very long endurance. So basically, we can uh, do any role that we need to. We can adapt. And uh, one of the roles that we adapted to in the Middle East was a lot of overland surveillance. So our uh, EO camera up the front has been upgraded numerous times. It's uh, a fairly competent sensor now. And uh, we did a lot of overland surveillance where we'd uh, help out ground troops with uh, with overland stuff so that was a new role uh, really for us did you do much of anything maritime at uh, the Mio or was it all oh we, we still spend a lot of our time flying over water in the uh, northern Arabian Sea and the northern Arabian Gulf and uh, more recently they were doing anti-piracy patrols down around the Horn of Africa so a lot of over water stuff as well so a good mix yes <laughs> as uh, being up the front uh, what kind of tasks are you given aside from the obvious of getting the plane off the ground and back on again what kind of uh, things are you doing up the front there uh, well being an older aircraft there's not actually much automation up the front we do have a, a very basic autopilot so generally one one of the pilots will be flying the aircraft most of the time or monitoring the autopilot uh, and the engineers and the other pilot will be monitoring the fuel monitoring airspace uh, safety heights uh, and directing the flying pilot so if, if we're doing anti-submarine warfare it's actually quite uh, aggressive maneuvering so one person's flying and the other person's making sure we're at a safe height and uh, and turning in the the right rate. Now you also have a flight engineer up the front there with you, um, that, so they're another pair of eyes to help keep an eye on the, how the aircraft's going, monitor what's happening, things like that? That's right, so they take care of most of the systems that are automatically controlled in some of the more modern aircraft, but it's also good to have a third set of eyes, they're often uh, the guys who've got the time to look out the front and uh, and take in the bigger picture, it's also good, they're normally twice the age of the pilot, so it's good to have some grown-ups up the front keeping us all in check. <laughs> yeah, because uh, this is the uh, last aircraft with flight engineers, so I imagine uh, a lot of them will be rounding out their tour with this before the uh, Poseidon comes in. Uh, that's right, the, the P8 doesn't have uh, an engineer, but uh, I'm sure a lot of the guys will find other uh, employment within the RAF. Uh, I'm sure they're all still valuable to us in another way, but P3 is going to be the, the end of an era for those guys. You said you're the uh, display pilot. How did you come up with a display? Did you inherit this one? Basically, it's it's a slightly modified version of, uh, of another display. Being a, a large aircraft, there's only so many manoeuvres we can perform, and we need to make sure we're doing standard manoeuvring that's, uh, that's safe. We don't want to try anything new in front of the crowd. So, yeah, we do all the standard stuff. The P3 is unique in that we're the only aircraft that's allowed to shut an engine down as part of its display because that's a standard procedure for us. So we shut an engine down, show the crowd the Bombay and uh, give them a fast pass at the end. What kind of performance are you getting from the old girl? Uh, the max speed of this aircraft is just over 400 knots at low level. Uh, in the display here, we wind it up to about 370, 380. We don't want to take the time to extend too far to get to a maximum speed, but uh, it's definitely one of the fastest turboprops in the world. It's it's good fun flying at that speed in such a big aircraft. Uh, I hear it handles pretty well. 
It's very nice. Yeah, it's uh, perfectly set up for handling uh, at low level at uh, about 200 knots. That's where it's comfortable and it, and it loves being at those speeds and uh, it's very easy to fly and very enjoyable to fly. How much practice and rehearsal do you have to do to get ready for the display? Uh, we've got a fairly structured workup routine, so we uh, do about three sessions in the flight simulator. Once the authorisation officers are happy with how we're going in the sim, we'll do it in the aircraft, stepping it down from you know four or 5,000 feet initially down to 1,000 feet and then down to our 200-foot uh, MOA, which we've been using for the show. Uh, we did two of those at Edinburgh, and we came to Avalon last Saturday and did, did the display here just to make sure there were no surprises on the ground. Now, uh, in past shows, uh, the display aircraft's actually staged from Edinburgh, um, while it may be a static on display here. Does that cause any complications for you with what you're doing, trying to juggle everything? Uh, not really. The crowd's pretty understanding when we need to uh, hook up the tow bar and tow the thing out. So, uh, no, it doesn't really pose any problems at all. Yeah, aside from these pesky media getting in the way. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. So, um, where to from here for you? Uh, well, who knows? Uh, the posting cycle always comes around every three or four years. Down the track, I can probably expect a promotion at some stage and hopefully a Flight Commander gig uh, still flying some kind of aircraft. It's yep. always a surprise. That's a great thing about the RAF. James, thanks very much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Flying Officer Tristan Hull, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, mate. Now, you're an ACO, that's an Air Combat Officer. Yep, and uh, I'm the NAVCOM on board the AP3C Orion. Okay, how'd you uh, wind up in that seat? So uh, I joined in 2008. I did three years studying at the academy, and uh, after uni I went and did one year training at the School of Air Warfare down in East Sale. Uh, from there, I went to uh, 292 Squadron to do my operational conversion onto the P3 Orion, and uh, then I posted to 10 Squadron. With the uh, nav training, was that in the King Air? Uh, yes, it was in the uh, KA-350. Cool, what's that like to be in the back of? Quiet and cramped. <laughs> How many of you do they have in there? Uh, they usually just have a student and instructor, but uh, sometimes you can have two students in there at the same time. And uh, go and blat out around Victoria and, and over the ocean and try and figure out where you're at? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty intense training in terms of lots of maths, things like that? Uh, uh, yeah, it's pretty full on to start with. You do a lot of ground school, a lot of exams in quite a short amount of time. A lot of stuff to take in, especially haven't really had much of an aviation background. The training was a lot of fun, go through with some pretty good guys. So You get used to being in the back of an aircraft as it's being thrown around the place, so is that part of it? Uh, yeah, it's quite different to the P3 though. Getting you used to uh, like trying to work while there's no um, visual reference and you're being bounced around, I imagine that would be a bit of a challenge. It can be difficult to get used to, but once your head's in it... You're in the groove. Yeah, that's right. So uh, you're now sitting as the uh, as a navigator on the P3. What's that task involve? Uh, so the NAVCOM's primary role is tactical communications on board the aircraft. So I can uh, manage up to six radios at a time. So you could imagine I have to uh, sometimes working pretty hard, uh, managing to do a lot of things uh, just at once. Uh, also a big role for the NAV is safety. So I have to make sure that we keep away from land, uh, avoiding obstacles and safety heights. I'm also a back up for the pilots with regards to airspace and uh, routes and fuel planning. So if you've got six radio channels all going at once, it must be a bit of a cacophony at times. Uh, yeah, sometimes it can be quite busy. Uh, you learn to listen to things that aren't quite so important. You learn to block out quite a few things and also ignore the cones down the back. How long uh, are you likely to be the uh, NAVCOM? Uh, I've only posted into 10 Squadron six months ago, so I've got another year left as a NAVCOM before I head over to 292 and do my TACO conversion. Okay, and what's that involve? Uh, so TACO conversion is a whole other three-month course. And that basically teaches you to be the mission commander on board the aircraft. Uh, so their responsibility is the mission, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and how we're going to get there. Uh, so they control such things as uh, weapon releases, uh, search patterns, and uh, how they're going to hunt down a submarine. So you learn all about that and what the uh, other guys down the back can supply you to help uh, make the mission happen? Yeah, so the guys down the back are they're experts in what they do. They look at uh, what comes off the sonar boys and they learn to interpret data. They talk to the SEM and then the SEM uh, gives information to the TACO. 
uh, to employ the aircraft. And so from TACO, you'd progress to be one of the uh, specialists, do more training? Uh, no, from TACO, uh, that's pretty much the end of your tour. So uh, you have your initial three-year posting here, and then you're looking at either going to SOAR to be an instructor or 292 as an instructor or just a general other posting. Now, you're pretty young, mate. This is straight out of high school for you? The high school, uh, uni, and then uh, through to P3s pretty much. In your time on the P3s, what kind of uh, gigs have you done? Are you able to talk about some of the um, the types of missions you've been on in terms of rough where you've been, what you've done? Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't really done anything particularly exciting. I was unfortunate that I missed out in the Middle East, but uh, I have done some exercises off the East Coast of Australia, playing with the Navy, which was quite a lot of fun. Uh, I've also done uh, over six deployments uh, up to Northern Australia uh, for Border Patrol. As the NAVCOM, you'd be uh, kept pretty busy. Are you ever looking out the windows on uh, when you're doing search and rescue? Are you search and rescue it's a big part of us that uh, once we're in the search pattern that we have to look out the window so uh, obviously there's only well not many windows on this aircraft so we've got observer stations down the back where people are looking the whole time but when we have the headspace and the time to do it we have to look out the window because you never know someone might miss it up the front someone might miss it down the back and we just might see that person yeah it could be the backup that gets it yeah yep. i imagine that must be kind of tricky if you're trying to juggle all the other tasks as well it can be quite busy yeah <laughs> search and rescue is quite a busy period for the nav there's a lot of things to do uh, we also are in charge of sortie records on the aircraft, so uh, we have to record absolutely everything that goes on because uh, if we find something or don't find something and uh, they look at the sortie records and turns out we're in the wrong place, then uh, we can get in a lot of trouble. So we have to keep those records up to date as well as you know keeping the aircraft safe, talking to people and looking for people in the water. Now, the typical, uh, you know, everyone thinks Air Force, thinks fast jet, they uh, jump in their plane, get out there, do their stuff, come back for dinner and so on. But you guys are uh, often out for long missions and uh, get tasked to interesting, uh, like, you might get told, get pack your bags, disappear somewhere, and away you go, yeah? Yeah, I guess it's sort of like that. I think it's a lot more exciting than fast jets. I mean, they only fly for, what, an hour, and then they're out of fuel, so uh, we can stay on station for up to 12 hours when we loiter an engine. Uh, the longest sortie I've done was a 11.3, I think, and that was a search and rescue, northern Australia. <laughs> but, yeah, no, we go to quite some exciting places. I've been to uh, Cocos Island, uh, which is, uh, we go there quite often, which can be good fun. Um, we also do operations up in uh, Malaysia at uh, Butterworth there. Yep which is also a lot of fun. Tristan, thank you very much for coming on the show and talking to us about your role as Navco and uh, where it's going for you in the uh, Ryan. No worries, my, my pleasure. All right, Jackie Carlon from Piper Aircraft. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you. And you're enjoying the uh, sunshine out here. Finally, we've got some sunshine here in Melbourne. I hope they didn't tell you that we uh, that, that it never rains here in Melbourne. <laughs> no, nope. Actually, I'm just glad to now have the sun out and uh, it's warmed up a little bit, so yeah. we're glad for that. And uh, the sun is shining on that uh, gleaming Piper Seminole out there on the ramp there. Have you had a lot of interest in that airplane uh, here at Avalon? Actually, yeah, we've had quite a bit of interest in that aircraft, and, of course, we're excited to have that aircraft here. It's brand new. Uh, just came over from the factory. We... Um, I was surprised at how many people wanted to know how we got it here, and uh, we shipped it in a container. Right. It arrived in Australia not too long ago, and then our uh, friends over in Moorabbin put it back together, uh, reassembled it, and it will be uh, ferried out of here to uh, the Nelson Aviation College over in New Zealand. Uh, so it's a brand new airplane. So. Uh, you know, usually whatever you have on display is what pilots want to talk to you about. So if you have a Seminole, everyone wants to talk to you about the Seminole. If you have a Meridian, everyone wants to talk about the Meridian. But uh, this aircraft's had a lot of interest since, uh, number one, a lot of people have learned to uh, fly multi-engine in that aircraft. And um, it's also of, of interest because Australia has a very strong pilot training market. 
So obviously the Seminole is very well used uh, through the training uh, world as we know. So uh, that's, sure. that's when you're marketing that sort of aircraft into this region, given as you said that we've got uh, lots of training organisations here training airline pilots and that sort of stuff. That's the market you're pushing into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that aircraft's really well suited to the uh, training market, uh, given its uh, reliability and the fact that it's very durable. And also, one of the things that we've really been pushing is the fact that we announced in November that those aircraft are going to transition over to a G1000 avionics platform, and uh, that, uh, that we'll get type certification on that in uh, late June, early July, and uh, we'll start deliveries very shortly thereafter. So um, the G1000 will really help that aircraft regain some market share where it had previously lost market share to our competition for not having the G1000 available in it. Um, so uh, we think, uh, given the training market here in Australia and the fact that a lot of the uh, flight schools are geared towards creating career pilots, mm. um, they will specifically have an interest in the in the G1000. Well, G1000 is such a recognized brand too, isn't it? It seems to be in ever-increasing use, regardless of the manufacturer. They all seem to use that suite. Yeah, it's become the industry standard, mm. really. I mean, it's, it's impressive on uh, how Garmin has done that, and they've really secured that position and we've uh, tried it um, other Garmin installations which are great for that product but at the end of the day the airlines tend to dictate to the flight schools really what they want in terms of experience and G1000 seems to be the gold standard. How do you go for certification in, in uh, this part of the world? Is it quite a lengthy process? Have you had to you know work closely with CASA or organizations like that? Typically what we do is we go after certification in the United States first. There are some organizations that will do certification they'll run alongside so as they're doing their FAA certification, they'll be running along doing certification in other countries. But for Piper Aircraft, we, we seek FAA certification first, and then we immediately follow up in key markets. And so for that product, it'll be Australia will be one of the first markets we'll go after. Um, we'll go after uh, several countries throughout the Pacific Rim. And, and you know, CASA is actually a really great aviation authority to work with. Some of the others are a little bit more difficult, um, but CASA is a good, good team to work with. And so um, if you basically follow their guidelines and provide the paperwork that they need. It doesn't take too terribly long. I think worst case scenario would be six months following TC. Uh, sometimes we can get it even sooner. They're, they're relatively easy to work with compared to some of the other countries. Now, if you're an old-fashioned pilot like me who learned to fly back in the dark age, <clears throat> 1990, <laughs> I like steam gauges. If I wanted to buy one of these airplanes from you, that's obviously still an option if you want it. Yeah, we, you know, it's funny. Um, a lot of our competitors have uh, walked away completely from the round dials. and um, What's the matter with them? <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, that, you know, that's how I learned to fly, so um, I'm partial to that as well. Uh, I also learned back in the dark ages as well. <laughs> so um, the round dials are something that there are still flight schools that really gravitate towards that and you know I I applaud them for that because I think at the end of the day um, a well-rounded pilot has experience in all different uh, avionics platforms um, you know if you have any sort of failure very often you have to revert back to the round dials and you, you better be good at reading them so um, but we will be able to offer those um, the tough thing that we're up against is there is some um, obsolescence issues starting to arise with the round dials and the round dials are becoming pretty expensive um, but uh, for as long as we can we'll continue to offer them yeah, of course, we talked about the training market, and that's very important. Over there in the, in the United States, for example, what percentage of aircraft that you would sell of this type go into the private market? Are there many private buyers buying light twins like this, a, a go places airplane, or is it...? Yeah, generally speaking, we don't see a whole lot of Seminoles going into what we call the owner-flown market, you know, private individuals. Uh, more, more typically, if they're going to buy a twin-engine aircraft, they're going to buy the Seneca 5. 
uh, people they want the six seats they for, for whatever reason and, and very often their families or they're hauling stuff and they, they, they just prefer to have the six seats um, so we don't see them very often going to the private market at all um, and, and in fact the archer we see more commonly going into trainer market than going into the private market but you know for that thankfully we have a very um, fast product line we have eight different models that we build so we've got kind of something for everybody from a trainer up through a single engine turboprop so if uh, if this if the smaller aircraft four seat aircraft aren't what they need well then you know we have great value propositions for the Mirage the Matrix and the uh, Meridian now uh, let's say that I uh, you know I'm in a position to purchase one of these aircraft and have it built fresh off the line and ship it here to yep. Australia what sort of lead time are we looking to get, to get one out here uh, usually when we start specking airplanes and when I say specking you come in and you say okay I want this color leather and I want the paint scheme to be like this and these are the avionics options that I want in my aircraft we usually have people doing that about five months out because um, each aircraft is basically built to the customer specifications and they're hand they're you know they're handcrafted by our, our team in Vero Beach um, so once the aircraft's uh, been completed um, we go through the delivery process and it's usually about a um, about two months to get it out here, maybe a little bit less, depending on how we get it. If it's a PA-46, we'll ferry it, and it's a much shorter time to get it here. If we have to send a Seminole or an Archer, we have to container it, usually, is the most cost-effective way to get it here. So at the end of the day, you're looking somewhere about six months lead time. Six months, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, you've got it out here. Obviously, Piper has worked very hard to have a you know a good uh, support and follow-up backup mm -hmm. network for anyone that buys one. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right. That's paramount in being an aircraft manufacturer. You really have to make sure you have, um, you consider all aspects of the ownership experience, which is not just taking delivery of an aircraft and the excitement associated with that. It's the um, service after delivery. So we've uh, taken great steps to ensure that not only is there um, maintenance service centers available, but we also have partnered with Avial, and they're our parts provider, and they have stocking locations within the country of Australia. And then the team back in, in Vero Beach works with the um, parts provider to advise them what aircraft are funneling into the marketplace and then they ensure that they stock the parts and we're proud to say that Avial has a parts fill rate of 98%. So Jackie, now everybody of course lives in the, uh, the modern age and we're all on computers so uh, can you tell us where Piper has their main web presence these days, Twitter, Facebook, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, you know, um, the internet's become, well, social media has become really, really important to Piper. And uh, we are focusing, you know, for the first time, we're drafting a very comprehensive marketing plan on both owned media and shared media. So with respect to owned media, um, you know, that would be our Twitter presence. So we have a we have an actual Twitter plan, and every month we sit down and we say, okay, what are we going to tweet about this month? And sometimes there's things we leave open items when we know there's something coming we can't write, even write on paper. Uh, and then, of course, we have a very strong presence on uh, Facebook, and uh, we set a goal every year: how many likes and followers do we want to gain over the over the course of the year? And we uh, have no problem exceeding those goals every single year. We also have a um, presence on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, and this year I expect that you'll uh, see the amount of video content that we post increase quite a bit because that seems to be the number one requested thing from Piper is video content. So we'll be working with our team on that. So right now the primary pri primary internet or social media presence is going to be Facebook and then Twitter 
and of course um, our YouTube channel. No worries. And everybody can find that on your website at Piper.com? Absolutely. Our Twitter is um, at Piper Aircraft and Facebook. Just just search Piper Aircraft and you'll find Piper Aircraft Inc. without any problem. And we hope that you'll take the chance to go on there, the opportunity to like us and follow the activities. And we promise we keep the content kind of fresh. And then when we have new announcements, that's the first place you'll see it. Well, you've got plenty of crowds coming past through here today, Jackie, on yes. the, uh, on the uh, public day. So we wish you every success, and uh, thanks very much for spending some time with us. Thanks for coming, stopping by, and seeing us, and seeing the Piper Seminole. We really appreciate it. Do you have the need? The need for speed? Jet Ride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, Jet Ride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jet Ride. Forget the rest. Fly with the best. PCDU's Avalon 2013 series is brought to you by Avplan. Get more for your EFB. avsoft.com.au Classic Flight Bag. For those who identify the sky as their office, grab your bag and go. ClassicFlightBag.com Sennheiser. Sennheiser S1 Digital. The quiet revolution in aviation headsets. World Flight Planner. Plan your flight like a pro and get worldwide coverage with World Flight Planner. WorldFlightPlanner.com Eco 2000 Zoc 27 Gas Turbine Cleaner. Shaping the future of gas turbine washing. And Red Baron Adventures. RedBaron.com.au Plan your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breathe and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Bob Carlton, welcome back to uh, Plane Crazy Down Under. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, this is our fourth trip down to Australia, and uh, as usual, the people are friendly. Uh, the weather's nice, except for the usual crosswind, and um, we're having a great show and uh, look forward to doing a great flight today. Cool. Now, uh, yeah, you've had a bit of fun with winds the last couple of times, and during the evening last night, it looked like it was pretty blowy for you. It was, uh, it was blowing pretty good, but, uh, you know, it wasn't a straight crosswind, so, uh, you know, getting off the ground is the hard part after that. Everything's uh, pretty easy, and, you know, we do this a lot, so we're... You know, we're ready to deal with it. Does flying at Avalon present any specific challenges compared to other uh, airports that you've presented at? No, not really. It's uh, it's a pretty standard air show layout. Uh, we've got a nice long runway and uh, a good flat uh, area to perform in. And uh, other than the fact that Rich is out there uh, uh, blowing the crap out of the infield once in a while, um, uh, no, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward air show. Yeah, those crazy pyro boys. Yeah. <laughs> at, at the briefing this morning, the, uh, there's a, a large orange tarp that gets set out to Mark Show Center. And uh, they said, we, we didn't see it this morning. And Rich uh, raises his hand and says, it was a uh, casualty of the uh, pyro event last night. Oh, no. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> It wasn't the wind, it was me. (laughs) So, mate, uh, for those who haven't actually heard our backstories where we've been chatting to you before, can you just quickly run through uh, the aircraft and what you're doing with it? Okay, uh, what I'm flying here this this week is uh, is the jet-powered Salto sailplane. Uh, It's basically a normal aerobatic sailplane with a big jet engine mounted on top. 
So uh, I can take off on, under my own power, climb about 1,500 feet a minute. Uh, 2,000 feet, I pull the engine back to idle and I begin the aerobatic routine, soft and slow like a normal sailplane. And then when I get low, I come up with the throttle and uh, do low level uh, jet powered aerobatics. Now, I believe this is a similar kind of jet to the one that's going in the, uh, the Sonics jet. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, working with the uh, Sonics aircraft on uh, what they call the Subsonics, uh, which is a very small uh, airplane, and it's using this same engine. Um, it's uh, single seat and cruises about 235 miles per hour. I, I do remember seeing a video that went online at one point where you were melting snow when they did an engine check. <laughs> yeah, when they first got the engine, it arrived in December, and uh, they, were, they were anxious to get it out, try it. And uh, yeah, they put it outside the hangar in Wisconsin with uh, lots of snow, and uh, we're using it to uh, to clear the taxiway. <laughs> <laughs> Good test. Good test. Okay, now with the night show that you do, you've got some um, pyros rigged on your aircraft. Yeah, for the night show, uh, we put pyrotechnics on the wings, the fuselage, and the tail, and uh, go up and uh, fly upside down and light the airplane on fire. Uh, what's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, low, slow, inverted, on fire. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of challenges does the uh, pyros, you know, you, you're in the dark, you're flying, night vision, all that kind of stuff. Uh, how, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, flying aerobatics at night is, is really just a matter of being very familiar with your aircraft. So most of us that have been flying the same aircraft for a while, we could actually do this show with our eyes closed. And uh, so flying at night is not really that hard as long as you've got a, a lit runway or some sort of you know, lit line below you to use as a reference uh, periodically. And granted, most of, you know, half the time you can't see that. Uh, so you're just doing the, uh, the, aer the aerobatics by muscle memory. But then as you come around the maneuver, you pick up the line again, make small corrections, and then enter the next maneuver. Okay, and, uh, uh, and the, the pyros don't blow your vision or anything like that? They're all behind you? No, in fact, uh, the... With this plane, the, the pyrotechnics come off the wingtip and the back of the fuselage. I never see the show. I have to take it, uh, you know, I see a little bit. I can tell they're lit, but uh, I have to take the, you know, the word of the people on the ground that things went the way they were supposed to. So, Bob, I'm just having a look around this gorgeous aircraft. Um, what modifications and what process have you had to go through uh, for, A, the jet engine and the pyrotechnics? Is there special engineering orders involved? The Salto luckily has a very open structure above the uh, spar, and unlike most sailplanes where the wings cross and, and basically pin to each other, this one has a very heavy carry-through structure and each wing pins in independently. So that heavy fiberglass structure uh, gave me a good place to mount hard points for the engine. So other than having to cut the canopy down because it used to have a very long canopy, the, the engineering of it was actually fairly straightforward. Uh, the pyrotechnics, um, you know, the Salto had a nice uh, uh, flat wingtip that uh, gave me a place to, to mount smoke or pyrotechnics or whatever. So it actually was, was a very easy aircraft to do this conversion on. With your jet engine, uh, what sort of uh, flow rates and uh, tank capacity are we looking at for a, a routine? The, uh, the wings will hold about 15 gallons of fuel, and that's good for about an hour at cruise. Uh, for the air show, I take off with about 11 gallons, and I'll probably burn about half of that. Um, I've got a little extra in case they hold me, a Jetstar comes in or something, and, uh, and they have to hold me out there for a little while. So, Actually, that's an interesting point, uh, Jetstar coming in. Do you, do you have that issue with other air shows where there's an actual com commercial domestic airline going on? A, a lot of air shows, we, we have to work around uh, uh, commercial aircraft coming and going. And, you know, they, they have a schedule, but just like uh, all of us, uh, sometimes the schedules don't work out exactly. And, you know, an air show is actually down to the minute. 
And so they only have to be a couple of minutes early or late until they have to slip them in ahead or behind the, the slot where they originally were, were intended to go. So, yeah, we work around that. It's uh, very common. Uh, you know, we've all done it before. We, uh, we, we slide back, we slide forward, whatever it takes to make it work. So given that uh, powered aircraft gives way to sailplanes and sailplanes give way to balloons, where do you fit in this equation with the engine on the back? Are you now classed as a, a powered glider? It, it's just a, a powered glider, yeah. Uh, in the U.S., I fly it on a, a glider certificate, and I don't even have to carry a medical certificate to fly it. <laughs> well, uh, guys, I win because I'm in a balloon, so I fly <laughs> balloons, so you guys have to all give way to me. Ha ha. Actually, I may win because I have dropped a hang glider from a balloon. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to build up the hours to be able to do that. Uh, I've watched the guys go and do it, and yeah, bl- hang glider dropping. Were you in the hang glider? I was in the hang glider, yeah. Yeah. I know I have a couple of my friends, uh, hang glider loonies, and a couple, gone up with a couple of the balloonatics and big long line and get up high and then poof, straight down. It's quite an experience, I'm told. It, it was pretty exciting. When, when you pull the, uh, pull the release, there's just a split second there where, where nothing happens. And uh, sort of like, uh, I don't know if you guys got Wiley Coyote, yeah. uh, you know, he'd come off the edge of the cliff and there'd just be the split second where he didn't move. And then all of a sudden, wham, he's gone. And that's exactly what it feels like. You, you pull the release and there's just this, this little bit of time where you go, oh, this is simple. And then all of a sudden it pitches nose down and, uh, yeah, and you're headed, <laughs> headed for the ground. Yeah, Cool. So what sort of G-forces are acting on your body in this particular routine? In my routine, I'm not pulling as many Gs as some of the others. Uh, this plane originally was rated for plus 7, minus 5 Gs. With the extra weight and the engine and complexity, I, I'm holding it down to below 5, uh, plus 5, minus 3. So, you know, I'm typically pulling, I'm shooting for somewhere between three and a half and four Gs in the, in the pulls, and, um, and that'll give me a, you know, an extra G or G and a half for the uh, turbulence. And, and what sort of uh, control do you have over the jet engine? Is it a simple stop-start switch and a throttle lever with an ECU controlling the turbine? You got it. Um, yeah, the engine is completely digitally controlled. Uh, got a single lever that acts as a start-stop and the throttle, and there's a, a spring-loaded detent Anything behind the detent is just control functions and push the detent, slip it forward, the engine starts, and then that also becomes the throttle. Now, Bob, I uh, understand you've just recently been over in the Middle East doing a bit of a gig over there. Yeah, we, uh, we got a call on about the 1st of October that uh, Kuwait was doing their 50th Constitution Day celebration, uh, the world's largest fireworks show. Uh, Guinness was there, certified 77,282 fireworks. And as part of that, they asked us to set up pyrotechnics on three French aircraft to fly in, during that uh, event. And so in about a month, we, uh, we built all the pyrotechnics racks, the electronics, uh, had the pyro shipped uh, over from Europe uh, and then put everything in our suitcases and uh, went over and, and set all that up in about four days. Wow. That's... It was uh, it was crazy. <laughs> that's intense. <laughs> now, uh, were you flying? I did not fly in that show. Um, despite what some news agencies put out and we got in a little... Uh, a little trouble because they said things that we didn't say. Uh, no, I did not fly in that event. Uh, we had uh, Eric Weisel, um, uh, Nicholas uh, uh, Ivanov, and um, uh, Frank Sobrain, uh, all three uh, world-class aerobatic pilots out of Europe, and uh, they brought their planes over and, uh, and, and flew the show. What were their planes? We had uh, an Edge, an Extreme, and a Sukhoi 26. Wow, that's quite a, quite a range. Yeah, they wouldn't even give us three of the same aircraft to work with. <laughs> Plus, two of them are 12 volt, one was 28 volt. Uh, yeah, it, it, they. <laughs> well, it's good to see you've still got hair left and haven't pulled it all out. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, these planes didn't even have lights. We had to set up the lights and everything. It was. Uh, 
it, it was a very, very intense month of uh, design effort, but I called on some, uh, some, some of my crew that, that does things like the pyrotechnics and the electronics uh, machine shops, and uh, everybody dropped what they were doing, put people on extra shifts, and, uh, and we got it all done. That's great. I understand you also uh, had in that four days, you had to uh, train the guys on uh, the issues of night aerobatics. Yeah, well, again, they're, they're all world-class uh, uh, pilots, but they had not flown this type of event at night. They hadn't flown with pyrotechnics. So we did a uh, you know very thorough briefing, walked them through all the way from the time you get in the cockpit till you get out of the cockpit for a night air show. And um, the uh, you know they were a little nervous on the first takeoff, but within just a few minutes, they realized, yeah, we've got the skills that, that we need. And with with those little hints that I gave them of where to look, what to do, how to set up, and that sort of thing, uh, it was you know, very quickly they got comfortable with it. Yeah, just to roll back to the pyros, the canisters that you put on your wing chips are they a home rolled uh, design or are they an off the shelf design that you can purchase? The uh, the pyrotechnics is uh, something I buy. Uh, if you go to any large rock show that has pyrotechnics, I get my uh, materials from the same place that they get theirs. Okay. So if you go to, a, um, let's see, what's some of the big ones that are out, uh, you know, Iron Maiden or, uh, yeah, or yeah. Motley Crue or something. I've, uh, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, the same. I think I've seen one or two of them. Yeah, the, uh, yeah they, they buy their, uh, their pyro the same place I buy mine. And if I go to one of those rock shows, I'm always looking behind the scenes and going, oh, yeah, I recognize that and that and that and that, yeah. <laughs> I know that effect. Yeah. <laughs> this is my wife, Lori. We've been happily married for 10 years. We've been legally married for 30. <laughs> and I keep the logbook. <laughs> the poor girl has put up with me for more than half her life. And you're like, you know, still willing? I mean, you know, it's like, wow. Oh, yeah. Know, define no. willing. Uh, <laughs> it depends wow. on what day. No. No, it's, it we, we are actually having a blast at this. It's, it's yeah. been really great. Now, uh, so Bob does the uh, flying. Lori, what do you wind up doing? Uh, washing down the plane, wiping oh, the wings, <laughs> doing the books, helping both of us do the contracts, just kind of the office admin stuff, keeping the business plus our other business. Yeah, all, all the bits that really matter to make sure that the pilot looks good on the day. Exactly. Yeah. You've had f- a fair bit of fun traveling with Bob? Oh, yes. The air show business is definitely paying off the way I like it. Uh, coming to Australia is, is awesome. Getting Going to Oshkosh in August is awesome. Uh, just traveling around and meeting all sorts of interesting people, it's great. Do you get enough time for the two of you to take some time off and uh, relax while you're here? We do, we do. We're After this trip, we're going to Sydney for a week. Excellent. And uh, we've, we've been to New Zealand, we've done the Great Ocean Road twice, so yeah, we get some time to have fun. Excellent. No, that's great news. Okay, and where to after this? Is it uh, after Sydney? Is it back home? Yeah, we go back home and, uh, of course, the airplane will be on the ocean for about five weeks. It comes back uh, somewhere around the middle of April and uh, the last weekend in April I have to be on the east coast of the U.S. So uh, it, uh, as soon as the plane gets back, it's going to be hit the ground running, pick it up in California and probably a drive pretty much straight through to the east coast. Road trip! Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, Bob and Laurie Carlton, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, well, thank thanks you. for having us. Okay. Cheers. Every time we go to an air show, we always seem to bump into our ones up, and we've done exactly that now. How are you, mate? Good, Steve. G'day, Grant. How are you? Hey, not bad. How are you, mate? Good, good. Well, now we've got a bonus this time because you've also brought Kiralee with you, and Kiralee, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, Owen's always spoken highly of it. Trust me, he's never said anything embarrassing on the podcast. Isn't that right, mate? As far I best recall. Right, as best I recall. <laughs> as best I recall. 
So how's Avalon been for you? You've been here promoting a new book, which we'll uh, talk about in a minute. Yeah, it's, it's been busy, obviously, on the trade days, uh, the work with Australian Aviation Magazine, tying up connections with, with the different distributors of aeroplanes because we do the air tests for those aircraft, and also covering stories for the Daily Show newspaper. We looked at the GA-10 and Avia have brought in a six-dimension simulator. So it's been very busy from that point of view, and it's probably only around now that we're starting to catch our breath. Australian Aviation, our listeners might not know, but they actually produce the Show Daily magazine here at the air show for the first uh, four days. Yeah, that's correct. It's a a daily, you could almost say a a glossy newspaper that updates the latest uh, events that are happening around the air show and in aviation in general. And it gets compiled within 24 hours. And to see the production process in place is pretty amazing that it comes out of quality journal. The next morning when we get here, the boxes are already printed up. So the editorial team in there does a first-class job. But that, that kept me busy that first day at the show, certainly. And your work as technical editor, um, I know you do a lot of flying. Have you had a chance to do any flight reviews here? It's been a little bit quiet with the weather for flying. Yeah, Avalon also, in terms of uh, getting aircraft movements in and out during the show, is virtually non-existent uh, once they get them parked on the ramp. But where the air tests have come into play, I've been able to have great discussions with some of the distributors and some of the uh, major players and lined up air tests for throughout the year. So that's been very beneficial. But actually getting in and out of Avalon during the show, she's pretty tough. Unless you're flying in a Super Hornet or a Hawk or something, it's pretty Absolutely, hard and you can try to change your call sign, but it, they don't buy that, yeah. <laughs> I can't hear you. Or a, or a KC-30. I did some flying this week. This might be the only air show where I've done some flying and you haven't. Quite possibly, quite possibly. <laughs> well, I didn't do any flying. I did some riding. Uh, you, got, you, got, you got altitude. <laughs> <laughs> So how have you found it? It's been a little bit quiet here at this air show this year. Has there been uh, many exhibitors for you guys to get around and, and speak to? Yeah, there have been a, a number of exhibitors to speak to. In terms of seeing the throughput of, of people visiting the show, to be honest, when you, you've got targets that you're focused on to go and speak to, you don't probably take in the bigger picture yet. It's only now that we have, and the public have started arriving now, so it, it does look busy to me. But prior to this, like I said, I've pretty much been dealing one-on-one with people, and they with me, so I haven't really been in the ideal spot to see how busy it is. You've probably got around more than I have. Now, Kiralee, I was walking in the gate this morning, and much to my surprise, you were standing there handing out magazines. Now, how did they get you, uh, you know, roped into doing that? <laughs> uh, I volunteered because Australian Aviation has brought Owen down here for the air show and, and let me come along. So um, I thought I'd give them a bit of a hand handing out the magazines today and anything else they needed. Yeah, and it was great to be involved. I had to do a double take. I sort of thought, I know. Hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, the one thing you find about the Australian Aviation team, really, having been there six or seven years now, is that there is an almost a little sense of community. You get the job done and covering each other's bases as well. It's, it's a very tight-knit unit, but a good place to be around. So people tend to put their hands up for things, which is great. Now, Kiralee, you know, we've had Owen on the show several times. We know Owen's an airline pilot, but um, you guys are unique as a couple because you're also an airline pilot. That's correct. Yes, and you fly 767s? I do. We, we know that, um, actually, you have seniority on Owen in the airline that you guys work for. That's right. I've been working uh, for that airline for 17 years now. I think Owen's been there about 11 years. So. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Since his previous life in Ansett, So. <laughs> Can you tell our audience how you guys came to be, you know, husband and wife, uh, pilot, jet pilot, uh, jet oh, pilot team, dear, airline many, pilot Many, 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 many years ago, <laughs> I learnt to fly at a flying school at Bankstown called the Australian Flying Training School. I would have been 18. Owen was then the chief flying instructor of the flying school. 
I didn't have anything to do with him really for the first year or so. He being quite a senior member of the flying school and me being a very new student. <laughs> so, um, but then after getting my commercial license and my instructor rating there at AFTS, I ended up working there as well. So then I was working with Owen and that's where I got to know him. Uh, Owen didn't give you that many flying lessons? No, he gave me no flying she lessons. She avoided me is the honest truth. She yeah. thought I was the old grumpy test officer. He was. He's so, a test um, Well, everybody uh, you know, avoids those guys at flying school. He, was the, <laughs> he used to just march into his office and slam the door and <laughs> after being on a test flight with some, on a test with somebody and I used to try not to fly with him if I could. But yeah, it wasn't until uh, I started working there that we actually got to know one another. Yeah. What she learned about that slamming door though, that was an intentional tactic because as a chief flying instructor or test officer, you're continually, sir, can I just, can I get, can I get, and I used to walk in, close the door lock firmly and they go, ooh, I'd go in, make a cup of coffee and do all the paperwork. <laughs> and I never got in, interrupted the whole time. I was in quite a good mood, but I just uh, wanted to get the paperwork done. You obviously got together at that time. Uh, things eventually <laughs> married, blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah yes. Yeah. We've been married 15 years now. So. 15? Well done. Yeah. How has a, with the two of you on your career paths of flying and all that, how have you managed to juggle raising a family? Luckily, who I work for, um, they allow me to work part-time. So in the last 10 years, I've probably only actually been flying for about four or five of those years because I've been off on maternity leave or um, long service leave. And then each time I've come back, they reach train and they allow me to work part-time so I do two days a week and um, Owen does looks after them on those two days pretty much occasionally we'll have help from a babysitter or a nanny or family or if we can and we just juggle it we juggle it from month to month every time we get a roster lay it out and we go okay who's going to cover which days and it usually works out. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're very busy you guys aren't you every time I talk to particularly you Owen you've always got you know two dozen things on the go and books here and test flights there it's not the first time we bumped into you, Kiralee, so you do a lot of travelling with Owen, so you're very, very busy. Yeah, I guess organisation's probably the key to that. Kiralee's a better organiser than I am. But yeah, time management, and, and as you guys know, I do a lot of it early of the morning too, before little feet start running down the hallway. Fortunately, I have to type quietly these days sometimes to get the job done as well, but it, it's really just being organised and doing it in the downtime in hotel rooms when you're away. So, time management's critical. I, I think it's the same for anyone with kids. Yeah. Uh, Yes. <laughs> My biggest failing is time management. Okay, let's talk about books. You've, uh, you've been writing, done a lot of writing in the past and you've just released a new book, 50 Tales of Flight. Yeah, 50 Tales of Flight. It was, um, I won't say an afterthought, but I released the first book down to earth in conventional means, which was by print. And as a lot of people are aware, I'm working on another major book at the moment, which I should have finished very soon and hopefully get a publisher for that out in the, this year. But in the interim, obviously, I've written a lot of articles and editorials for different magazines around the world. A different thing is I've started over the last couple of years is the blogs on my website. Fundamentally, I've got probably got around four or 500 stories on my hard drive, and I started reading through some, and I thought, you know, they're as relevant as they were when I, I wrote them, and I thought, why not put them into one place? And the thing was, they weren't just technical, they weren't just relating to training, all different aspects of flight, so that's why I call it 50 Tales of Flight, and it was as varied as war veterans' tales to when I've had an engine failure or the hangars I used to sneak around in when I was a child. So I thought I'd put them all in one place. And the easiest, most conventional, well, not most conventional, but the most straightforward means for me 
was to do it as an e-book in the first instance anyway and it's gone far better than I could have hoped. I, I'm not quite sure how all this internet catch-on works but it, it has, the other day it was number one bestseller in aviation on Amazon which sort of caught, blew me away because I can't say that I've advertised it anyway but yeah, I, I enjoyed the stories and I just hoped other people would too and the feedback is that they are. I've started it and uh, working my way through it as and when I can I've just done the first story. Yeah, so yeah, I, I didn't even know that but when you, you get a free sample or sh- view of the book and that's the first chapters and and I didn't even have an insight that that was the case so I'm glad the stories that are at the front are the stories that are there because they actually give a bit of a time frame and a look into the book so that was more luck than anything it says here on the uh, in the description of the book Owen uh, moments of tension and others of uh, humorous relief are there any stories that come to mind that stick out Uh, there's a lot one I always sort of relate to people is some of the sights we see are phenomenal and I I was midway between Hawaii and the west coast of uh, the US one night and I saw a brilliant glow on the horizon and you could hear the chatter on the radio no one knew what it was and I I won't take too much from the story but the description thereof is is a rocket launch that came out of the west coast of the US and blasted off into the upper atmosphere and the sight I hope I've been able to capture it in words because I'd probably rate it in the top five of things I've seen from an aeroplane so that one does stick in my memory there's also one which I relate to called unforgiving I read an article saying how aviation was dangerous I sort of went away thinking well it's not inherently dangerous dangerous but it's unforgiving if we're not disciplined and we make mistakes it can bite you and I thought of all the people that I've known who it has bitten and that story grew from that so that's sort of got a little bit of a personal touch as well because I relate to the names of of chaps I know who aren't with us anymore so they're probably two in a diverse way that that stand out for me. And are there any plans to go to print and you know do the dead tree version as they call it? There wasn't but the level of interest that's come through it it is probably a real possibility. My focus at the moment is obviously to, to see how well this ebook does, how, how it, it uh, spreads out there in the marketplace, but probably in terms of workload, the primary task now is to finish this written manuscript um, that I want to get out, and that's probably the primary task. Subsequent to that, I'll see where 50 Tales of Flight is at, and I'll probably make a decision then. Well, I mean, I've got to say, if, if you don't have a dead tree version, how am I going to get you to sign that and autograph another one for me? Well, I could do it quite easily. You just won't be able to use your iPad again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't scribble on my iPad. I'll get an awesome yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard because I've already got a lot of liquid paper on there. Yeah. <laughs> now, Owen, uh, we talk about a lot of projects that you've got on the go, um, you know, uh, test flights, flights around Australia, flights to Mars. What have you got on the in the planner? It's probably the writing is, is the primary thing away from here. The first e-book, which is new for me, this major work that I'm working on, I'd like to think that maybe down the track it could become a TV documentary, this next book, because the story is fairly enthralling. But that is two steps down the road. The main thing is to focus on the writing and keep putting out good content for Australian Aviation Magazine, see how 50 Tales of Flight goes and finish this next manuscript because it's the one I really, really want to get done. And uh, I would encourage you to also continue to keep writing about cricket because that's what matters, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, that's... I like reading your articles about that, cricket. That's my other passion. That's yeah. my other passion. Unfortunately, with all the aviation going on, it's the passion that sort of slips into the gaps when they, they rarely appear. Well, the book is called uh, 50 Tales of Flight by Owen Zup. You can find that on the uh, the Amazon Kindle store. It's $3.00. 95 great buying. Owen, you should have charged more. You could have, mate. I've already purchased a copy myself, mate, so it's great reading. Great, thanks for that. Yeah, and I believe iTunes is out next week. I, um, I'm i not terribly savvy on how all of these functions work, but they've assured me that it comes out in about a week's time. So uh, thanks for your support, guys. It's, no it's, it's Owen, great. Always good to catch up with you, mate. And Kiralee, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for Timbo's Tarmac. 
ATC Ben, I'm back with uh, Timbo for the Saturday edition of Timbo's Tarmac. Nice, bright, sunny day. Good weather today, Tim. Nice, bright weather today. Crosswind still a problem, though. So you've got a couple more visitors, though. We did. The Hudson, uh, after his display, decided that there was enough crosswind to have a go. I think they just got sick of going to Point Cook and back. <laughs> That's right. It's a bit of a drive if you go in, into Point Cook instead. And uh, now we've got uh, quite the collection. Everybody's happy. We'll just uh, tuck them in for the night and do it all again tomorrow. We're just about to play the uh, the tarmac shuffle and move move a few of the birds around for tomorrow and uh, we'll go out from there. Yeah, put away those couple of precious ones that like the hangar and don't like staying out, but everything else will be here for the night. Excellent. And hopefully it's uh, good weather again tomorrow. And uh... That's it. One day to go. The legs and feet are saying that's enough, so we'll make it through. Thanks, Tim. In the keyhole with Papa Smurf. It's see Ben doing Grant's hard work again. And we're now in the keyhole. We're talking to Papa Smurf. How was your Saturday, Smurf? Not too bad, Ben. Uh, there was a few little hassles, but uh, nothing major. We started off the day by uh, claiming ownership of a DC-3, putting it in the keyhole. So that we started into our flying program, which was uh, the first thing out that we had from the keyhole was the Catalina, the old black cat from Haas. Took it out of the, the hole and uh, took her over to what we call uh, Terminal 6, which is over near to get it out of the road. And we also put had an Orion over there, which came from down on Alpha Taxiway, which we also look after. And then our next aircraft was the C-17 Globemaster. Cleared all the people out, because at that stage we were jam-packed. That was at around about 11.30. Put it out on the uh, Taxiway Alpha and launched it. And then when all three had finished their part in the show, we, we recovered the Monte Alpha, shut them down and then we towed them back into the keyhole. Money for safety's sake, not because they can't get in here, but with all the people around, we prefer to shut them down so that cuts down the risk of accident. After that, that was pretty quiet. That's it, we like we just We just had a couple of uh, DC-3s that were in and out today down on Bravo 5 that we launched off Alpha. For us, that's a quiet day. We had a bit of a problem when we towed Connie out. I'm sorry, that's the one I missed, was Connie. Connie, when she went out, we had a little bit of a trouble getting her out because when they put the cat back in its position, a few feet towards Connie than what they were when it went out. So consequently, when we went to tow Connie out, we were blocked. We had to jiggle Connie around a bit between the cat and... The KC-30 and the C-17 that are parked on the apron. We managed to get it out and get it away on time. Uh, when she came back, we towed it back into position. We put the caribou in a little corner out of the road. When Connie was home, we put the caribou in front of her, packed them away for the night. Probably the same sort of thing will happen again tomorrow. Uh, we had a fairly late night last night. I don't know whether you were still here. But... No, we, we were here to the end and then stuck in the car park for quite a while. <laughs> we probably got home before you then. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, we left about 10, I think it was, or a bit before 10. Yeah, well, so... we, weren't, we weren't too far behind that. So, yeah. uh, one more day to go. And one more day to go, yeah. Call it a night for another show. Yeah, tomorrow's my last day. I'm not staying for the Monday this year. Monday's usually a, a launch day for all the aircraft that are decided they're not going home tomorrow night straight away. In the mad so, in the mad rush in the, the first rush, yeah. yeah two hours after the show finishes tomorrow. Yep. I won't see him go on Monday. Two years time I will. Excellent. Alright, thanks Smurf and we'll catch you for the last day tomorrow. No worries Ben. 
Well, I'll tell you what, Grant, um, interesting. We've we've spoken to a lot of RAF crews over the time, but the Orions, I guess because, uh, well, they're based in South Australia, it's hard for us to get over there for a start. But, of course, uh, they've been deployed extensively over in the Middle East area of operations. That uh, deployment's only recently come to an end. So it's been difficult uh, for us to get over there and talk to those guys. But, uh, you know, you've spoken many times about the fact that your father was uh, with the New Zealand Air Force and he worked on Orions. So I know that uh, that aircraft's special to you. Yeah, it was pretty cool to be on board. Um, still looking kind of 60s or 70s on the interior, but uh, major upgrade with all the guts of the aircraft and uh, touch screens, keyboards, trackballs, all that kind of stuff. So quite different um, in terms of the electronics capability. And of course, the PS3 looking controller looks like a chunky uh, P- wired PS3 controller that controls the electro optical uh, turret in the nose. So quite similar to what we've seen on police helicopters before when we've um, gone and explored them. So, yeah, really interesting to be in that aircraft. Uh, kind of been a bit to be there. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. Uh, normally at Avalon there's a P3 that's parked on, on one of the taxiways for a static display. Maybe a couple of crew around, maybe not many, but it's mostly displayed there. And the flight display is actually done by an aircraft that'll stage out of Edinburgh, come in from South Australia, do its flight, go back home. So, yeah, this was kind of handy to be able to go and grab a crew and have a chat. Well, I'll tell you what, wait, we've got one more day to go. Day six of Avalon 2013. Uh, the weather's looking pretty promising for tomorrow. I think it's going to be another fantastic day. We've got a uh, bucket list of interviews we want to get done, and we we're hoping we're going to rush around quickly and get all of those done. It's been really great catching up with some interesting personalities uh, this this time around at Avalon. Some people we spoke to uh, the last time. Good to catch up to you know where they've been uh, going over the last couple of years, but there's always uh, something new at Avalon, and we've managed to catch up with uh, you know some people it's been interesting to talk to, and uh, there's still a few more, so we've got to get uh, get this ready and uh, get busy for tomorrow. Well, that means we better get this out into the into the uh, live world and go get some rest, mate. Absolutely. Well, in that case, we'll wrap this episode up, folks. Uh, Avalon 2013, day six is tomorrow. We'll see you then. You have been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under's Avalon 2013 series. Look for our video coverage on our YouTube channel, YouTube slash Plane Crazy Down Under, and follow all the Avalon action on Twitter at the hashtag Avalon13. Contact us anytime with feedback, suggestions or advertising inquiries at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. Playing Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media podcast.